Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. I'm Andy Boyd. I'm speaking today with David Ajmi, author of the new memoir, Lot 6. David, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. So, David, you're well known as a playwright, um, and I was sort of surprised when I found out that you were writing a memoir. Why did you decide to write a memoir? Well, I mean, I did actually decide to write it, but initially I hadn't decided to write it. Someone approached me about it. It was pretty random. Um, and it came on the heels of an opening that I had in New York of a play of mine. And these publishers from uh, these people from HarperCollins had come to see it. And this editor asked if I would um, write a book. I, I don't totally know why they thought I should write a book, but they wanted me to. And um, so after like initial resistance, I did it, but it wasn't something I was like, itching to do exactly. <laughs> yeah. Were there any other memoirs that you sort of used as a model in writing yours? You know, honestly, I'm not super um, <clears throat> into memoirs as as a form. I don't read them as much as I read um, fiction mm-hmm. and um, or even auto fictions, you know, like, so um, I really was um, checking out um, uh, works of fiction like, like, for example, I mean, this is maybe stupid to say, but I was reading a lot of Proust because, um, which is kind of, I guess, a memoir or an autofiction. Yeah. But, 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 but the thing that I needed to, from Proust was, um, or to sort of like steep myself in, was this kind of granularity of um, consciousness. And, mm-hmm. um, and because I, because I, because I knew that I didn't have a particularly exceptional life, like nothing monumental had really happened to me. So I kind of felt like I was in an odd position where I was like, okay, I'm not like super famous. I just had my debut in New York as a playwright. No one really knew who I was. And I thought, well, how can I make this interesting for people? And I thought, well, if I can't do it in terms of like, you know, these like monumental like events and things like these like earth shaking things that would happen to me, I could really expand um, the consciousness inside of the book. And those are the kinds of books that I like to read anyway. And um, so that was, I read a lot of Proust. I reread actually all of Proust and took notes. I I reread Speak Memory by Nabokov. and the only book that I read, but it wasn't really a model for me, but I just wanted to see what he did was um, Richard Wright's book, um, Black Boy, because I yeah. think it's an absolutely incredible. Amazing book. Yeah, it's I mean, that is the gold standard of memoir for me. Yeah. And it, it's so cinematic and it's so um, it's just it feels gigantic in its scope. And I just I wanted to see sort of what he did and how he did it. But in the end, I don't think I could do it. Yeah. <laughs> like I was reading what he was doing and I was like, this is so incredible. When, when I sat down to write it, my voice and the way I approached it was actually totally different. So, um, but I admire, I admire that book tremendously. 
That's interesting you say that. I actually, I had thought about that book while I was reading your memoir because I feel like what they have in common is that they're both, I mean, your memoir is not entirely about your childhood, but it's largely about your childhood. And his is also largely about his childhood. And in both cases, you have this narrator who just like doesn't understand why the world has to work a certain right. way. Right. <laughs> it's always just sort right. of banging his head against, you know, this wall of social expectation. It's so true. And I hadn't thought of that actually. Maybe that's why I love the book so much because childhood, it's like, you're almost like a foreigner. You're mm-hmm. a foreign um, person living in a foreign, you're living in a foreign country as a child and you have to figure out what are the rules of this country? How am I supposed to acclimate to this country? But, you know, there's this very amazing scene. I mean, there's so many amazing scenes in Black Boy, but there's a great scene in early on where he goes to a bar. He's sort of like wander around the neighborhood and he ends up going into a bar and people think it's really funny and they get him drunk. And he's like wobbling around. He's like a really little kid. And there's something about this clash of, well, a child being exposed inappropriately to um, a kind of harshness um, of the adult world. Um, and that I, it, it, it's like, you know, reality when it comes, comes as a series of shocks or dislocations in that book. And I, uh, and all my favorite books do that and all my favorite works of narrative art do it. And um, so there must've been something in that, in my unconscious where I was like, oh, I relate, I relate to this book, but I never thought I was going to do a book about my childhood. Like I thought that was so like, I felt kind of allergic to it as I was writing it. Cause I was like, I don't want this to read like YA or anything, you know, yeah. like, I mean, not that I love YA, but I just didn't want, I wanted to be able to figure out how to write a book that I thought was um, serious book. And who knows what, like, what that means, serious. But, but I was scared that if I sort of entered into childhood, that my book would become mired in like childishness. You know what I mean? Like, I wasn't yeah. sure if I could find the, if I could fuse together my adult consciousness and the ob- and 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 fill in like um, the pigment of all of these un uh, sort of unprocessed memory like memories. I had the memories from childhood but I didn't have them filled in with a substantive consciousness. And so I was like, mm-hmm. how can I do this in a way where I'm fusing the past and my present consciousness in a way that doesn't feel like treacly or like gooey or like also phony, you know? And, and it was a kind of hard thing to do. So I was surprised that it, I ended up including all that stuff because it wasn't something that I aesthetically would necessarily be drawn to. And that seems like really necessary material because a lot of the conflict in the second half of the book is you and your mother and father sort of contesting the grounds of your childhood. (laughs) There's a great scene where your mother is saying, you had a happy childhood. And you're like, no, I didn't, mom. (laughs) And she she just can't accept, I mean, you know, sort of understandably that, that you don't think of your childhood as having been happy. Right. Um, and, and the same thing with your with your father, though he's sort of even more in denial uh, in some ways. Yeah, and I think ultimately, like art is recursive, like this, whether we know it consciously when we're making it or not, we're always returning, um, we're spiraling back again and again through these events and these traumas and these formative experiences that shape us and um, making sense of it. And the book is sort of cracking. I mean, what the book is really about, it is like Kunstler Roman. It's a book about becoming an artist, but it's also a book about becoming a person and how one 
shapes oneself, how one in a very sort of granular, tiny uh, micro level, what are the little choices that we make um, and the little political decisions that we make every single day as we are in this formative stage of our development uh, that leads to us becoming, you know, this adult grown self. Um, how does one make those uh, choices? How do, how do those decisions get made? And what's the process, the, the, the process, um, the interior process? What's going on inside the consciousness of the person? So for me, like, it was actually really necessary that I started kind of where I started. And then the book actually like kind of, I think it becomes kind of Dickensian, <laughs> you know, because, yeah. because, and it doesn't, it spans like a gazillion year. I mean, it really spans 30 years. It's kind of crazy. I don't know if it's like a memoir. I don't know what it is. Um, as I was writing it, I was thinking like, can I write something that spans as many years and have it be properly classified as a memoir? Cause they're usually a little bit narrower, but then I decided that I just do it anyway. Well, what are the things I don't know if you've even read this book, but one of the memoirs that reminded me of a lot was Fierce Attachments oh, uh, by Vivian Gornick. Gornick. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, well, and that's that, a book that also spans, you know, I think an even longer period than your your memoir. Right. And that, but, but that is a really narrow book too, because it's really about her and her mom. And, um, and isn't it, right? It's like about this yeah, relationship. Yeah. That you know, right. And that book, and so that's, like, this is more abstract, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I kept feeling like, oh, I should make it more narrow. But then I thought, well, I don't know how to do that. So um, I just sort of let it be a little sprawling. Yeah. Um, which also seems to be sort of in line with a lot of your plays, too. You have a sort of penchant for drawing on a bigger canvas than maybe a lot of contemporary playwrights. <laughs> I'm, I'm maximalist. It's true. I can be, but I also had, I wrote a play that was 20 minutes. So, and we did it as like a full length play. Um, yeah. So I've done, I've done both, but I do tend to want to, my new play is uh, four acts. My other new play is very long three acts. So I do tend to want to make bigger, bigger plays. Yeah. The first play that I saw of yours was Marie Antoinette which I saw when I was an undergraduate and, um, and I, I didn't really like understand, you know, what your, what your angle into the story was until reading the memoir. And one of the sort of important given circumstances of your memoir is that your family had at one point been quite well off, but by the time you were born had kind of fallen into the lower middle class, which is sort of the story arc of Marie Antoinette. Was that, was that a, a sort of conscious, uh, decision that you made to sort of think of that play as, or think of that, you know, historical figure as a way to think about something about your own childhood? It was not at all conscious. No, it wasn't. And um, I didn't know why I was writing it until long after it was finished. And I wrote it very, very quickly. That play was like, it's funny because it's my most produced play and everyone knows me for that play. But I wrote that play in three days, literally in three days. I came really? up with it. I researched it for two days and I finished it three days later. So it was not something that I thought about that much. You know what I mean? And That's wild. Yeah. It's one, sometimes I, ha I had another play, the play that I wrote when I was at Iowa, which I write about in uh, the book. Mm -hmm. I finished that in basically a day. Um, so sometimes I can do it if the mood strikes me. I don't know. But usually my plays take my new play. Uh, my newest play took me seven years. Um, yeah. and I have another new play that took eight years. And so it, it generally takes me a very long time 
but um, that one didn't. But I don't. Yeah, the un, it's interesting this unconscious material and how it gets um, cycled through. I'm sure there's tons of my mother in Marie Antoinette. I'm always mm-hmm. pulling from stuff unconsciously. Obviously, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, but um, but I'm sure there's. There's, I mean, I'm always collaging together people from my past and people from, you know, Sheep's Head Bay where I worked in a clothing store. You know what I mean? Like those people. Yeah. And I like that. I like to be able to interface this, like these off the beaten path experiences of mine with these kind of world historical things. I think it's really kind of funny to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to talk a bit more about your mother who is a great character. I mean, you, you say that there's pieces of her in Marie Antoinette, but, but, and that was sort of my reaction too, is that not specifically Marie Antoinette, but she seems like a character in one of your plays. Um, and I won't spoil too much about the book, but that sort of becomes a, a, a plot point later on. Um, but could you, could you talk a little bit about kind of who she was and your understanding of her and how that evolved over your early life? Well, it's who she is. Cause she's still around. Who she um, is. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, so I mean, but who she was then. I mean, she um, you know, my mother um grew up in the 30s in Brooklyn. And um, you know, uh her her she was first generation. Her parents were both um Syrian Sephardic Jews, like my dad's parents, and they came from, you know, Aleppo and um uh uh I don't know where else. Somewhere in oh, Antab, Turkey. And um and anyway, so she was first generation. She grew up in intense poverty. My grandfather got tuberculosis when she was a kid. And they were her her and her siblings were sent to like this kind of orphanage because my grandfather had to go to Colorado to, you know, to deal with his to a sanitarium and then he was trying to escape. And then my grandmother tried to get him and then she left them in this kind of orphanage. And so my mother was completely traumatized from all this stuff. From her childhood was really it sounds like it was really brutal when she tells me stories, which is rarely because she doesn't like to talk about anything at all. It's always really sad, scary stuff. So, you know, and she was very quiet and very innocent. And when she was 16, she decided my, my dad proposed to her. He was older and she got married and a year later wanted to annul the whole thing and go back home. And her parents had signed this, you know, form or certificate saying, okay, you can get married at 16 because it wasn't quite, a, wasn't quite legal. You had to get extra permission. Uh, but at that point, when she wanted to go back home, they were like, sorry, too late. You know, They had no room in the house. And I guess those were the mores of that particular time. So she was yeah. sort of this child, not child bride, but teenage, chi- mm-hmm. yeah, child bride, right? And um, and so she had no real mechanism. She dropped out of high school. She had no real mechanisms to deal with life and deal with these like new onerous circumstances. And my dad was really controlling and really difficult. And I think, you know, she had three kids really quickly and just kind of, and they moved to Tennessee for some reason, moved over there. My father had this business and she kind of like, I think she was really, it's sort of like, I, she missed the entire women's movement, you know, in the seventies and in the state, like she missed all that stuff. She was away raising these kids. She, her life was very insular. And I, she, I think she like, she felt like she'd missed the boat, but now she, there was no, nothing to do. And then they moved to New York 
in the um, early 70s. And then I was born accidentally. So she had to raise me. So that was a very strange circumstance uh, under which to be raised. Like I had to figure out how to negotiate. And, you know, and then everyone left the house and got married because my, my siblings are so much older than I. And then my dad left. So she was, I was in this house, this big house in the middle of Midwood, Brooklyn with this, my mother who kind of went through like a delayed puberty or so. I I don't know what it was. She was still 16 kind of, Mm -hmm. and she wanted to have this life that I think she felt she'd been cheated out of. And so, um, you know, but at the same time, my mother is a really decent human being and really wanted to help me. So I think she was very torn. And I think she knew that I was, either she designated me as a special kid, or she knew that I was special. She saw something in me, but she really thought like, my siblings were all, you know, they were raised in Nashville. It was not a particularly culturally rich environment. And here we were in New York and she was going to help me, try to help me in between her going out to discos and stuff. <laughs> so right. she, so she, you know I mean? Like every so often, I mean, she had to figure out how to fork her consciousness so she could do all these different things. And she was so worn out from raising kids. But I think also it wasn't just for me, it was for her too. She wanted to be edified and she wanted to have these like holy experiences. And so she took me to museums and she'd take me to the theater and um, and that was sort of my introduction to art and culture uh, was through my mother, though I didn't really understand what it all was because it was all wrapped up in like being in New York and luxury and hotels and restaurants and beautiful things and pretty things um, and people dancing in musicals. I kind of sort of like didn't quite know, but I knew that that was all part of something that my mother presented to me as culture and she was going to give this thing to me. Um, so she, she was incredibly important in terms of my artistic consciousness in ways that I wasn't really even able to count until much later until I wrote this book. Actually, I wasn't able to fully understand like, Oh my God, like this is all because of my mother taking me to, you know, these museums and, and plays when I was a little kid. Yeah, in a way, that's sort of what set you apart from the other people in your community. I mean, you talk about many of the people that you grew up with are sort of still living in the same area in Midwood, and 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 you're not. <laughs> right. Well, it's hypothesized. I mean, it's it's premised on them not changing because they have to keep right. this tradition alive. That's right. what they keep alive. Um, could you talk a little bit more about the specific cultural tradition that you grew up in? Because you you grew up in a Jewish community, but it was a Sephardic Jewish community. So it's sort of not what people think of when they think of like New York Jews. Could you talk about sort of some of the things that made that community distinctive? Right. Well, so Sephardic Jews were Jews um, who are descendants of the Jews who were kicked out of Spain during the Inquisition when Queen Isabella said, get out. So everybody went um, I mean, everyone went to different places. There were Latino Jews and, you know, but we, my ancestors went to um, the Middle East and the Ottoman Empire and um, Syria and Turkey and all this stuff. And then eventually in the um, early part of the 20th century started coming to Midwood and Bensonhurst and settling over there and starting these um, uh, businesses. And they became really, really good at it. They were really good business people. They were kind of ruthless pe- uh, business people. Uh, many of them were sort of tutored by Sam Walton from Walmart. And so they learned these kind of 
intense business tactics, but it made them very, very wealthy. And they started this like kind of, I don't know, uh, Tony enclave in the middle of this very strange suburbanish area of um, Brooklyn. Very, um, uh, you know, wealthy, mainly um, Arab American Jews, not really part of a mainstream discourse because we're not the people from the Woody Allen movies. It's different. And so some are very dark skinned, some are light skins, but we're, we're Arabs and we're also Spanish. So I found it a very confusing identity uh, for that reason, uh, because I, I sort of, it was never quite explained to me what the tradition was because our tradition was sort of invisible in the larger Jewish context. And also my family just wasn't really around to tell me anything about my, who I was. Right. I was just right. confused by it all. I knew they had a lot of money. I knew they drove Jaguars and Porsches. They drove really beautiful cars and dressed really well. And they were really good looking and, and very intimidating. Um, maybe like the Kardashians would be like the like closest analog. Like that's how it felt when I was growing up. Um, but, and there was um, a religious component to the whole thing. I mean, they were, some were religious, but they weren't, now they're much more religious. Um, back in those days, there was a sort of lip service to religion. They were religious up to a point, not quite so much as they are now. Um, but um, very insular, um, very old fashioned in a lot of ways. The, the women were encouraged to marry very young, not to be educated, not to go to college. The boys were also encouraged not to go to college. Like colleges were just seen as like finishing schools. They weren't like, you know, there was nothing laudatory about it. Whereas the Ashkenazi, uh, the Ashkenazi Jews were very focused on sending their kids to, to universities. And so I went to this Jewish yeshiva in Brooklyn and it was sort of half and half. It was half Sephardic Syrian Jews and half Ashkenazi. And like, I remember there was no college guidance counselor for me. But the Ashkenazi Jews had it. They re but I remember saying, I'm kind of interested. I, I said, I'm kind of interested in this in my sophomore year. And they were like, no, no, you're not. It, they, I was discouraged from even going going into it, which I thought was so, ugh, so bad. And was this, so this was an Orthodox yeshiva? It was like modern Orthodox. Yeah. So, okay. so uh, girls and boys were in the same classes, but, um, you know, we had to get to school really early and pray like a zillion times a day. And we didn't have, you know, it wasn't like Hasidic Jews. It wasn't like that. Um, we wore sort of, you know, pants. We had to have shirts with collars. We had to wear yarmulkes. We had to have, you know, mm -hmm. all that stuff, but it wasn't, um, it was, so it was modern Orthodox. Yeah. Um, and your family wasn't particularly religious. You, I mean, you talk about a lot of the people in your community kind of paying lip service to religion. So why did they want to send you to a yeshiva? I mean, it's a really good question. I was totally confounded by it when I was a kid. I, My dad, you know, it turns out like he really sort of wanted to become religious. Like, I think he just wanted to be a better person. You know, sometimes people like they don't know how to be a good person or they don't know how to be good people. So they want to like do like bookmark their goodness. And so I kind of feel like this was a way for him to bookmark something. Like if I send my kid here, that's good because it has religion and God and then I'll get more godly too. I really think that that's what it was. My dad was behind the whole thing. My mother, you know, I'd gotten into a prep school in Brooklyn Heights that she applied to on the down low. She didn't tell him. And then he forbade me from going there. And she uh, wanted me to go to like a 
lycée and do French, you know, my mother wanted me to be like super sophisticated, like, you know, globetrotter. My dad was like, not into that at all. So it was kind of like by fiat, he got me to go. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Is being Jewish at all an important part of your identity now? I mean, sort of, in the sense that, like, I, I'm really tickled by it. Like, I sort of feel like there's a quiddity to it that I love. But it's yeah. not necessarily – I don't observe the Jewish holidays. But when I was younger, after I left the yeshiva, because I left like, – it was a very violent – like, I'm getting out of here. I hated – I hated being, it was very conservative, very Republican. And I didn't understand what Republican was in those days. I didn't understand politics, but I, but that's what it was. And I knew I felt very squashed by it and I hated them and they hated me. And I just thought whatever Jewishness is, I don't want anything to do with it. And then later I sort of remediated all that. And I got like a lot, I became more fond of it. And I started to like cozy back up to it when I met more progressive Jews and, and, you know, I saw Jewishness reflected in um, culture in different ways and read books and saw movies and stuff. And I thought, oh, this is actually kind of adorable and cool. And um, I like this sort of, and I identified certain, like my psychic processes or like the way that I think and like the recursiveness and the like relentlessness of some of my thinking, I could identify as a kind of Jewish thinking. Mm-hmm. That's how, I mean, I was, I was trained that way in the yeshiva. That's how we analyze texts. But also I think I am that way, period. So I started to kind of see certain aspects of Jewish. I mean, it's such an abstract thing to talk about, but there is something, there's like a smell to Jewishness that I, that yeah. I recognize and I can't quite define it, but I sort of love it. And I've come to really, um, embrace it but it's it's culturally and obviously it's not the religion aspect of it yeah um one thing that set you apart from the broader community was that you were gay um but it that doesn't come up in your memoir explicitly until pretty far in um could you talk a little bit about the the process of you kind of realizing that the way that you experienced sexuality was a little bit different than the way that everybody else did well not everybody else but you know that uh, the majority of the people you're around. Right. Well, I mean, I do talk about it early in the book in the first chapter um, because the title lot six is a, is a, is a, like a sobriquet for gayness, right. It, in the Syrian Jewish community, it's not a pleasant one, but, um, but I sort of, I, I sort of talk about this memory from my childhood where I sort of know that I am this thing. And it's a horrifying recognition, and I won't go into the specifics of it because just read the book. But, but I, I had moments like that, and then I would block it out. And then I would have, like I was just saying to a friend of mine, I had this experience where my brother had these like club magazine, like, you know, like porn magazine, like softcore porn under his bed. And I found it one day, and I was looking going, 
wow, like this is a really attractive woman. I should like be feeling the feelings. And I was feeling nothing. And I thought this is, you know, it's like that song from a chorus line. I felt nothing. I felt really felt nothing. And I was like, this is so bad. And I remember putting it back under his bed and going, okay, like I have to, I have to, as my agent says, I have to put a pin in it. (laughs) I can't think about this. I can't, I can't (laughs) engage with what this means, but I know I'm going to have to, this is going to come back around, but I'll deal with it later. And I went into a deep denial. Um, And then in high school, it came up, of course it comes up again. And, you know, it was cool in a certain way that I was at the yeshiva because I could be sheathed by this overall sexlessness of the yeshiva because it was Mm -hmm. really weren't supposed to like date. You really weren't, you certainly weren't supposed to have, I mean, people were not having premarital sex at the yeshiva. That was for sure. Maybe some people were, but it was definitely hidden. If there were any, it was so, people were so squeamish about it. And, um, and it really took me a long time to really fully come out. Um, partly because that it was just a different time and homophobia was much more virulent when I was growing up in the eighties than, than now, clearly, I mean, it's still here but not the way it was then and not with the entire culture armed against you you know and that's how it felt in the 80s and not with like an aids of course and like you know it was all of this stuff that you were going oh my god i don't want to get aids and i don't want people to hate me or think i have aids and it was just so and you know and i didn't have a ton of um familial support period i was kind of on my own and I was it was felt very tenuous and I thought oh gosh if I ever came out my whole family would disown me forever and I'd be nowhere and have nobody so I had a very delayed um uh, coming out and like people said to me like I actually come out in a footnote (laughs) in the book I discuss it and I only added it because my friend Melissa was like you have to add this and I was like I mean I could add it but it's just like it was such a non-event I don't even know how to talk about it Partly because my family was so in denial, the the discourses were everything was so smudged and so, you know, if I came out, I'd have to keep reminding my father, no, I'm gay, and like I hated it every time I'd have to do it, I have to like come out again, and so I just stopped talking about it with him, and then he would want to set me up with some girl, and I'd say, oh, sure, give me your number, you know, I I couldn't even talk about it anymore with them, and you know, my mother was just all it's kind of the same way, so. Uh, my coming out in a weird way converged with my dissociation from my family. Like in some respect, it was like realizing I had to build a family elsewhere because even my coming out wasn't totally meaningful. It's like my existence wasn't necessarily being charted in any meaningful way by, by my parents or the people in my family I was kind of invisible to them. So my coming out didn't even register as something. And then when it did, they kept retracting <laughs> what it was. And it just kept making me feel worse and worse. Like it didn't free me or release me or liberate me. It made me feel really sad, actually. There was nothing to even work towards. It's like almost like things got more amorphous every time I tried to like define myself to my family. So I just kind of separated from them more. One of the things I really loved about the book, and then I feel like it's like a really distinctly Brooklyn thing about the book, is that on the one hand, you're very much in this very tight knit, almost kind of claustrophobic community, but you're also, you know, a 45 minute subway ride from Manhattan. And you write a lot about 
going to nightclubs in the 80s while you're like still in high school, which I just found kind of incredible. Um, could you talk about what that experience was like and like what was it like to, you know, start out from Midwood and like be headed towards some club in Chelsea or something? It's so funny. It, like I well, first of all, I was just again, I was talking about this to a friend of mine. I used to go to movies by myself a lot when I was a kid, but instead of going into Manhattan, which is so much more pleasant <laughs> in some ways, yeah. and there's just so much more available, I would go to these strange areas in Brooklyn. I would take a bus to like somewhere in Canarsie and mm-hmm. go to this bizarre and I I was like saying like why did I do that? Like I why didn't I go to, you know, the, you know, the Union Square Theater? Yeah. But I there was something forbidden or verboten about Manhattan. Um, and I was raised to feel that way and I would go, but every time I went, it was like I was trespassing or something. I really always felt that way. And, you know, and then later I left the yeshiva in my sophomore year of high school and I transferred to this prep school and in Manhattan. And I felt very cosmopolitan, very pleased with myself that I was now a Manhattan person. And, um, you know, back in those days, New York was a lot more rogue. I mean, it wasn't until, of course, Giuliani came and said, oh, you know, get rid of the nightclubs. Oh, this is terrible. Like, you know, he made and, you know, so things got much more sanitized post Giuliani in the 90s. But in the 80s, it was I mean, all kids my age were going to um, nightclubs, you know, all kids my age. That's who went to these clubs. It was yeah. kids in high school and, you know, and, um, you know, and everyone was drinking and doing drugs. I mean, this is just New York. That's what it, that's what it was. And, um, I didn't really, in the end, totally love it. Like when I, I, I remember like sort of feeling very sophisticated, but like, and I liked dancing, but ultimately there was something, I wasn't going to gay clubs. So it was, there was always this feeling of like, this is like a heterosexual environment. And like, I'm, it made, it made me increasingly aware of I'm in the closet. (laughs) What am I going to do? You know what I mean? And that made me very, very anxious. And also there was just something about, I mean, I'm really a geek at a heart. Like I'm not a sophisticate. And, you know, I was going to these really fancy schmancy clubs with all these, you know, celebs hanging around and, you know, and I was dressed really nicely in those days because I like knew how to dress. I wanted to look nice. And but ultimately, it really there was something just sort of empty about the whole thing for me. So I stopped, you know, going and I became kind of like a a sad little geek reading books in my in my room. <laughs> but, but it was like, you know, I had this whole experimental identity. I was trying to figure out like if I could be that person and and what would that give me? What would that tender if I became a club kid and met all these, you know, uh, you know, fancy people, what what would happen to me? Would I be better? Would I be better off? Would I be a better person? Would I be a more interesting person? I I just didn't know. So I kept experimenting with stuff like that. This is like maybe too abstract a question, but like in musicals, there's often a, I want song, you know, sort of like a character establishment. Like this is the character's like, super objective. Do you feel like you had a super objective when you were growing up? No, I was like the, the Lacanian the, the omelette, right? Which I talk about in the book. Like I was like an omelette spreading out on a griddle and I was going out in all directions. I didn't quite, I wanted a lot of contradictory things too. I wanted to be loved 
but I also wanted to, I wanted to be loved, but I also felt like I had to change who I was to be loved. And I wanted, but I also wanted to be loved as myself. And mm-hmm. I wanted to belong to something, but I wanted to set, be set apart from something. And, um, and I wanted to be very kind of dazzling and superficial, but then I also wanted to have a lot of depth. And I just sort of like, I wanted to be part of this big worldly experience, but then I also sort of wanted to reject all of that and become an, a monk. I had all of these conflicting impulses and, um, I guess the one thing I wanted was to to shape myself and so in the most the best way possible and I didn't know what the criteria or what the metric was going to be for best but I thought I have to have the best of everything I have to make myself the best of everything avail myself of all the best of, of things so that I give myself the best chance possible because I knew that like my childhood had sort of weighted things against me I knew I was damaged from all that stuff that I'd been through and I knew that I was going to have to compensate for a lot. And at the time I really thought I'm going to have to compensate for being a gay man, you know, because at the time you couldn't really be openly gay. I mean, at least in the world that I was in, there were clearly tons of openly gay men all over the world, but it wasn't, it still wasn't a socially permissible thing in mainstream society. So I just felt like I have to find a way to compensate for all that. That's what I, that's what I had in my head, how I want, what that meant and what were the concrete steps to take to do it. It was like, I was all over the map. So yeah, you write about being gay, not really being acceptable in the wide, wider mainstream society. But did, did you ever think about just sort of saying, you know, to hell with mainstream society and like moving to the village or, you know, moving to like one of the sort of neighborhoods in a big American city and like just living that life or, or did you no. always sort of want to be, yeah, why did that not occur to you? No, because I didn't, I didn't have, I think the thing is that a lot of these guys who can do that or did do that have a certain, there's a certain like solidity of self. There's a core, a strong core and, and it comes from how they were raised. And I think I'm speaking in wild generalities, but that's how it seems to me. Like people who have a kind of strong sense of self and can say, I'm going to do this and I don't care what the world thinks. Those people were people who were at some point exposed to things like unconditional love and they didn't have narcissistic parents raising them. I did. So I, I was, I always knew that there was, I was always on walking on eggshells and I felt, um, also, I didn't want to be marginalized by the world. I wanted to have this big superstar acceptance or something. I don't know. That's just how I want what I wanted. I didn't want to feel shunted to the side because I think my whole childhood I felt that way. I felt very invisible. I felt very unimportant. I felt like I, and I felt bad about myself. So I wanted to feel important to the world in a very big way, and that's what I was aiming towards. So after high school, you went to USC at first for college. Um, LA is obviously a very different place than than New York and very different place than Midwood. So what were your sort of first impressions of LA after coming from Brooklyn? That's a really good question. Well, USC was a very specific subculture in Los Angeles, and that's really where I spent most of my time. I kind of liked it. I mean, I really thought it was so glamorous and I was so impressed by the palm trees and the glamour and the restaurants and the chic 
whatever. I mean, at that time, I was really into that. And I felt just, I wanted to feel urbane. I wanted to feel like I was a man of the world. And, um, and I kind of felt that way there, or at least I sort of had this like delusion. I mean, I was very delusional when I was 18 years old in terms of like what I was actually achieving and how little I was really achieving. But like at the time I thought that was an achievement, like, look at me, you know? And, um, and it was interesting being around a bunch of really wealthy um, white kids from all over the country. <laughs> it was just yeah. fascinating to me. <laughs> um, and so, you know, um, but I really gravitated. I mean, I had my two clicks. I write about in the book. I had my very like macho uh, boys click where I was trying to like train myself to be hetero and be really tough and, you know, you know, gr- gruff. I don't know. And then I had this very geeky click. And I think the geeky click there were just like these people from like Arizona and Illinois and they were really geeks at heart and I loved spending time with those people so in the end I think it's like those were the two competing sides of me and like this part that wants to be so sophisticated and be a big celeb and then this like geeky you know shy you know eccentric person who just wanted to like stay in and read a book and watch a movie and I I think that eventually that side um, one out. And then I, I thought I'm done with LA. There was some part of me that thought like, this isn't, this isn't really me. And, and also I was there to study film. And I think the film program there, at least at the time felt very commercial and Hollywood movies were really crap at that time. I mean, they were just so broad and, um, with big sweeping scores and just real cheese cheese ball movies. And I was like, I don't want anything to do with this. You this know, it's like sort of the eighties. Yeah, it's like there was indie film, right? It was late yeah. 80s, early 90s, right? Yeah. So early 90s. So indie film was sort of coming up like this new American independent cinema in the early 90s. But like David Lynch was around, Spike Lee was making Do the Right Thing. And then there was like these Drive-In Miss Daisy, you know? And that's like, so right. it's like there were these two, this fork in the road. And I thought, no, no, I'm not the Drive-In Miss Daisy person. I'm the other one. Um, so I just thought I had to get out of there. Do you think that's part of why you became a playwright? Just sort of feeling like the movies that were being made at that time didn't speak to you? Because there's like, you know, there's there's very little indication if you, if you sort of like plot out your book that where it's heading is you becoming a playwright <laughs> until, uh, you know, pretty far in. Well, I always loved the theater, but I had never like seen straight plays when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um it really, I mean, honestly, I didn't put it in the book because my, my publisher said it just made the book seem so stupid. But the truth, the real truth is that I had this older cousin who was also gay, but in the closet. Um, but she was like an outsider to our family. And she also moved to LA and she was like my tutor. She was older. She was like a decade older. And she would say, you know, you should try this. You should try that. Look at this piece of art. Look at do this. And she said to me when I was at USC, like, oh, they sound horrible. Like you should study playwriting and like become a playwright because playwrights are like so great at dialogue and you'll have such great, di-. you know, she was sort of like trying to get me to do it. And I just listened to everything she told me because I sort of like, there's a part of me that's very willful. And then there's another part that's like a rag doll where it's like, okay, right. sure. Well, all right. Sure. So I just sort of like, but I think when I look back now at that time, because I was literally like, that's literally why, because my cousin told me to. That's why I became a playwright. My cousin said, do that. <laughs> but ultimately, it wasn't like when she said it, I didn't go, no, that's crazy. It was sort of like, yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know. There was some, it felt like destiny in a certain way. 
there was no other way that this was ever going to work out. Partly because the machinery of making a film and being a film director, it's like, I don't want to get a bullhorn and work with millions of people and, and yeah. you know, I could do that. And I probably will do it if I show, you know, do a, become a showrunner and I probably will do TV and do all that stuff soon. But um, to start out with when I don't even know who the hell I am mm-hmm. and what my voice is or anything like I knew that it was about a much deeper plumbing into my own psychic material and really and also when i was bad i was like was my writing at that time when i started it was so bad i didn't have a voice i didn't have a self i didn't know what i was doing i was fake i was lying i was sort of like i couldn't synthesize all the parts all the strands of myself and the kind of artifice that you need to wrap yourself in to make a great um play um i couldn't put it all together in a convincing way where everything was like humming like a chord. So I had a lot of work to do and I needed to do that by myself, by sitting in a room with very low stakes with me and a typewriter. And that was it. And, and that was the greatest thing I could have ever done. I think if I had tried to make movies, it would have just, I would have gotten really lost in all that. Um, so after college, you went to get your MFA at Iowa um, and that seems like a sort of very strange experience, too. I mean, you know, going from New York to L.A. to Iowa uh, it is a, a, another culture shock. What was that experience like for you? It's so funny. When I was leaving USC, I drove back to New York. I transferred uh, after two years at USC. I transferred to Sarah Lawrence and I drove. I was driving back to New York and I remember passing Iowa and Iowa City like the stop. And I thought, Ooh, one day maybe I could go there and become a big writer. And I remember thinking, let me just go check, check, take a look and see like what it's like. Maybe I'll like it. And so (laughs) I remember going off the highway and I'm driving and it's like the middle of nowhere. And then like, I see this like horrible, like pizza hut. It was almost like a, like a spaceship in the (laughs) middle of like this, its own like road. And I was like, Jesus Christ. And I was like, I turned around and I was like, I'm never going to that school. Never. And so I had in my head, I'm never going to this Iowa, you know, writers workshop. I don't want to go there. I want to be in, you know, a more urban environment. But of course, you know, haha, my plans were all thwarted and um, I did go there. And it was really great for me to be in the middle of nowhere, actually. I mean, actually, Iowa City is the coolest little town. I love it. I miss it all the time. I, they asked me to teach a couple of times. And whenever I go back, I'm so happy to be there because it's so charming, so quiet. There are some really cute restaurants. It's just like the thing that was so great about being there was, I mean, there were things that weren't great, like people pointing at me for having curly Jewish hair and like laughing at the mall. I mean, they really were not used to like a Jewish Jeez. looking type of person. Yeah. It's really super duper homogenous. And th- there were things that drove me crazy about Iowa, but I did love, um, I'd never been in a small town before ever. I'd only been in these big cities and, um, or like Sarah Lawrence was in Westchester. So fine Westchester, but I'd never been in this very cozy, like very, like an American place. I'd never lived in an American city or American town. And um, and I'd never lived in America. Like <laughs> to me, like New York and LA are not America. That felt like America, mm-hmm. and that was a fascinating experience to interface with that 
and ha- be like live down the street from like one of these old you know pharmacies where you sit at the counter and eat a grilled cheese and they serve Campbell's soup from the can and but it was I think the solitude and the quiet it was so jarring for me at first I was not used to this kind of quiet like walking home in pitch black darkness and just you could hear a pin drop at like 10 o'clock at night and um just being alone with my thoughts in this very very um spare Edward Hoppery kind of place. <laughs> it was weird at first. I was really uncomfortable because I was so used to distracting myself and plugging into a city. And then that's where I would get my energy. And I would almost like feed off of this. I would have like this manic energy. I was much more manic in those days. I was hyper. Mm-hmm. And at Iowa, I started to relax with my thoughts and I started to sink into my thoughts. And you know, that's how I was able to start really becoming a writer was there because I was able to focus and be very, very still. And I had no distractions. So I ultimately, I loved being there. One of the things I found really interesting about your memoir is that it's like not a straight shot to success. Um, And after Iowa, you went to Juilliard and you had a much worse experience, it sounds like, at Juilliard. And that was one of the things that was really interesting to me is like seeing this sort of, you know, ups and downs of your of your career. Um, Why do you think that the experience at Juilliard was so much, I mean, without sort of naming names, obviously, but like, why was that experience? Was it like the idea of like being back in a city and being able to distract yourself? Did that sort of ruin that sense of quietude that you'd achieved at Iowa? Or what was going on there? I think it's overdetermined. I mean, my first day at Juilliard was supposed to be September 11, 2001. That was the, that was the first day, so it was sort of that set the tone for the entire year. But I had a very contentious relationship with one of my professors. There were two people in charge of the program, both very very famous playwrights, and it was a very tiny program. It was just I think six or seven of us in, um, in over the course of a two you know two years. So there was a first year and a second year. We were all together in the class, but it was tiny. And, you know, at Iowa, I just, at Iowa, Iowa is a very special place. The playwriting program was very low key. Um, There were a lot, there was a ton of bad work that came in every week. It wasn't all good. Mm -hmm. It was a lot of weird, crazy, stupid stuff. Some of it was brilliant. Some was very avant-garde. Some was very traditional. They sort of let it be. And I really love that there was no one putting their imprint on us and saying, this is what a play has to be, or this is what you need to do. And I think at Juilliard, it was a New York-based program. It was, at the time I was there, it was the hottest program in you know, the world for, for what I was doing, because they just someone just won a Pulitzer, and then someone else had won a Pulitzer, I think, or there were a lot of people getting very, very famous. And because there were so few people even going to the program, it was the, the ratio, the, the percentage of people who were becoming super famous was very, very high. So I think that put a kind of pressure on both the professors and me. And, um, you know, and I was just a very skittish person. <laughs> I didn't have a lot of confidence. I had a smidge of confidence because I had done very well in Iowa. But then when I got to New York, it was a different vibe. It was just a more chic it was a more sleek feeling everyone it was more felt more normal everyone was very confident everything was very you know hard right angles it just felt very 
And I'm not at a hard right angle. I'm a weirdo. I'm an oval. And so, and I, I was kept trying to like find a way to sort of connect to this thing that felt very, um, I don't know. I felt like they, that was the real theater world. And what I was doing at Iowa was like kind of amateur hour, it, but though it wasn't, but that's how I felt like, Oh, this is how this, this is very important and I'm not important enough. And that's why I can't get along. And that's why my plays are not being received well here. And I started kind of like, I had a real crisis of confidence and I slowly had like kind of a little bit of a nervous breakdown, I want to say, because, and it was, it was again, overdetermined. It was September 11th was, I can't explain how gutting and hideous it was for years the trauma of that experience. I had nightmares about it every single night for years. I couldn't even go near that spot. I would walk down house and street and I couldn't look a certain way when I got to West Broadway, because I knew that's where I would have seen um, the towers and I couldn't look for years that went on. I wouldn't pass it on my way to, you know, I'd have the drivers and cabs take me a different way. So I wouldn't have to pass it. So that was huge too. It was just kind of like, it was a lot of stuff, but it was, it was really necessary. When I look back at Juilliard, particularly with my relationship with this one professor who I write about in the book, who I'm not going to name, um, it was absolutely necessary. I was really, I believe that that was destiny. I had to confront my own um, sense of my own uh, worth. And what, and because the thing is, as an artist, and this is something I try to write about in the book, you have to, there is no, like, how do you know what your worth is? You don't know. You know what I mean? You're just you. You don't think in terms of like an economy of worth when you're writing something, you're just trying to figure something out. Um, and you don't know why it's important or if the world needs to know what you're writing or cares but you feel that you have to do this to survive. And somehow you have to fight for this space, even though the space is like the way you're going to fill it is so undefined because you're not a defined being yet. I was not a master writer when I was at Juilliard, you know, I'm not one now, but I certainly wasn't one then. And so it's a really strange thing to like learn how to fight for yourself. um, When you're so sensitive, so porous and playwrights are that, and you're being kind of attacked <laughs> um, and you have to go, no, you're wrong. It's like, well, maybe she's not wrong. Maybe this, maybe I'm just not good at this. You know, I can't tell. I, I think I could be good. And also sometimes I wasn't good, you know, and it's like, is this, you know, what do I do if I don't do this? I mean, I, I just sort of lost it. Um, yeah. But there's then, one but, moment. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say like, yeah. but I needed to lose it. Mm-hmm. Because it because I, I needed to have the dark night of the soul, because once I had it, my all of my work was premised on that. After that, for the next ten years, all of my work threaded back to that experience at Juilliard, and was about unpacking what happened. So that actually like m- helped me to build my my work as a writer. There's one feedback that this professor gives where you bring in something and she says. Do you actually need feedback on that, or can we move on? That was the worst. That was <laughs> I the worst. Not imagine. I heard another. I heard a story of a different playwright who I also won't name. Who, uh, who a student came into his 
office for office hours and, you know, had sent, had sent him her, uh, her play and said, what do you think of my play? And he just threw it into the wastebasket on the other side of the room and said, that's what I think of your play. So oh <laughs> it could have been worse, David. <laughs> I've heard, you know, and there I've heard of like very well-known playwrights, some who I really revere, who would throw people's plays up in the air in the middle of class, like rip them up and throw them in the air. Yeah. Uh, you know, people, it's like, I feel like that's sort of like passe. I don't think you can do that anymore no, <laughs> without no. getting fired. But I guess back in the day, you could do it. So um, oh, it's just, the, oh, it's the worst. It's yeah. the worst thing to know because it's not, because it's so trans, like you're not helping that student yeah. and you're not giving that student any information. You're just humiliating. When you're just humiliating, you're just doing damage. Yeah. So why are you doing it then? But, you know, playwrights can be very, we're all messed up, let's face it. Like, we yeah. have a lot yeah. of problems. <laughs> Just don't teach, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm really sorry that happened to you. That sounds truly awful. No, it was good. I'm telling you, it was a good thing. Yeah. I can say it um, in retrospect. I have one more question, which I actually am, am stealing from an interview I read in the Dramatist magazine. And I thought it was just such a terrifying question. I, I needed to ask it, which is, do you feel like you've written like, your big play yet or is it still ahead of you Hmm. i think they're all my big play in a certain way (laughs) i i I feel like right now i'm very fixated on this one play that um was supposed to open next year which i think is not gonna happen and i think it's definitely in some ways it's my most successful and ambitious play and it is a big play. It's a four-act play. But no, I don't think so. I can't, you can't think that way because it's like every time I start, I just it's like I'm not even me anymore. I'm just Tabula Rasa mm-hmm. starting my first play. So it's sort of like that way of thinking is ascribing a kind of thinking to a writer that writers can't think about themselves like that. That's like more about how magazines would write about writers you know, but I wonder if like you asked Everett Albee, like, what do you think is your biggest play? Like, I don't think he'd say, oh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? He knows that everyone likes that play, yeah. but he probably would say something like Tiny Alice. You know what I mean? He'd go to some, yeah. like, yeah. He, he, you know, or he'd just be like, he's, he would just say something to like mess with people's heads because it's like, it's not really a real question. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, that's fine. <laughs> that's, like, I, that's like my teacher at Juilliard. Now I'm being mean. It's not a real no, question. It you know, it, it wasn't my question, so I don't even feel it. Uh, oh, that's offended. true. Okay. Okay. <laughs> don't be offended. Well, David, thanks so much for taking time to talk with me about your memoir, Lot 6. I really enjoyed the book, and I really enjoyed getting to talk to you. I loved it. Thanks for having me.